Enfleshment, probably not a word you typically hear. But John chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Word was God. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. And so enfleshment is God becoming flesh. God becoming man. Another word is incarnation. But it's really the story of Christmas. And, and so for the next five weeks, my hope and prayer is that... Um, we would, um, not only on Sunday mornings, but as you're walking through the week and working, just doing your stuff during the week, um, whatever that might be, um, your, your thoughts would ponder this whole concept of God becoming flesh. And why? And what does it mean? And, and, and what, 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 what was the result of this? And so... To do that, I want to look at several different passages through Scripture. We will get to the Christmas story at some point, but uh, today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to zero in on verses 5 through 8 this morning. Enfleshment. The Word was God, the Word became flesh. When I was... um, Come Christmas, I, I still I still love to watch children at Christmas, uh, whether it's a Christmas tree or whether it's stuff downtown and there's lights going on, and particularly those first years when they're kind of catching on and they're just kind of like wowed by everything, and and I hope that's what we become, wowed by what God has done. Enfleshment. Uh, notice the su- subtitle for us. I really want to draw attention to that. God became a man, not simply to die, but he came to became a man so that we might have life. Let's dig into this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul is speaking to a church that for the most part, he's got a lot of positives to say about it. It's a church that um, the Lord actually just drew him to that place. The Macedonian call, you might remember, in the book of Acts, where uh, he wanted to go in this direction and that direction, but God didn't allow it. And finally he saw in a vision a man calling him to come. And it was out of that context that Paul crosses into from Asia into Europe, and the gospel comes to Europe for the first time, as far as we know. It was in that context he met a name, lady named Lydia and eventually he was thrown in prison and, and, and shared the gospel with the jailer. And, and uh, it was out of that context that the church was birthed, the church of Philippi. And as he, many years later as he's writing to this church, uh, it seems like there's not a great deal of problems, but there are some things. For example, in chapter 4, verse 2, Apostle Paul says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And, and it seems like these two ladies were at odds with each other. It doesn't seem to be theological. Maybe they didn't like something about what somebody had said or whatever. We don't know the the implications of what was going on, but it seems like two individuals that had actually walked with Paul and served alongside him. And for some reason, they were now at odds with each other. 
And I think Philippians chapter 2 speaks directly to them. But it speaks directly to the entire church, including ourselves. These are people, for some reason, who have put the interests of others, um, put their own interests ahead of maybe others. Regardless, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, writes this incredibly beautiful piece. And in order to help us understand and wrestle with the idea of humility, it, it seems that Paul actually is quoting a song, a first century song. Just the way verses 5 through 8, have this mind for, among yourselves, which is, which, is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Most scholars think what we have in front of us is a hymn. And the Apostle Paul is just reminding them of that hymn and the truths of that hymn. Now, before we dig in, I, I want you to notice verse 5 just for a moment. I think it was Motir who, who, uh, who brought my attention to this, or somebody I read did. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going on in the mind of Christ. That's really, in essence, that's what he's saying. And, and what's going on in the mind of Christ should be going on in our minds. And so we're actually treading on hallowed ground right here. These, these few verses are quite significant. The Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, is saying, this is what's going on in the mind of Christ, and therefore it should go on in your mind. He's like, wow. When, when, when it's put that way, I'm like, oh my goodness. I already sit up and listen. So what does he say is going on in the mind of Christ? Verse 6, Jesus is God. who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It, it, literally, he says he's, that Jesus is God. He was in the form of God. In the Old Testament, God would uh, display himself in some outward appearance um, that almost always brought people to a place of, oh my goodness, wow, uh, overwhelmed, um, scared, frightened, all of those things. And the expression is they saw the glory of God or the glory of the Lord. And they saw how the glory of the Lord filled something. And so in Exodus 24, 18, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And the people of God saw. They saw, they saw a light. They saw brightness. They saw something. They saw God's outward appearance of His majesty, His presence, His might. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That was the tent before they had the temple. In 1 Kings 8, where, when the uh, temple was uh, uh, first instituted or started uh, under uh, Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 11, says a priest could not perform their service because of the cloud. 
for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Like they're trying to explain what they're seeing, and all they can say is this is cloud and the temple is filled and we can't complete our jobs and our tasks because God is present in a very visible way. Psalm 19.10 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are filled with God's glory. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so God's form, God's glory, dramatically overpowers and overwhelms people by filling the mount, the tabernacle, the temple, the heavens, earth, with His radiant light. So with that in our brain, we get to verse 6. Who though He was in the form of God, who though He was the glory of God that filled the temple, we're told in John that Isaiah saw Jesus. We go to Isaiah and we look at what Jesus, what Isaiah actually saw, and he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne and His the hem of his garment filled the temple. Like just the hem of his garment. And in Philippians 2, chapter 6, it says that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He goes on. This, this, this Jesus, this, this glorious Jesus, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped. Oh, he was equal to God. Uh, it, it's in John um, chapter 5. Actually, the Jews got it right. They, they knew what was going on. John chapter 5. I've got to go there. John 5 verse 18. Let me just read a couple little places. John chapter 5, eight, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as Jesus was walking on this earth, he was calling the God his father, and the, the Jews understood what he was saying was he's equal with God, and so they wanted to kill him. They got what he was saying right. The reaction was wrong. They should have been flat on their faces worshiping him. In John chapter 10, um, verse 30, you kind of get a similar, similar reaction from the Jews, at least the Jewish leaders. It says, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Are you, are you going to kill me for the good things I've done? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, think about the Old Testament pictures of where the glory of the Lord fills the temple, or the tabernacle, or the mount, or the earth. 
He did not consider equality with God, although he was God. Something to be grasped. Something to be hung on to. Uh, um, Some translations, something to be exploited. Selfishly exploited. Now, think with me. Every political leader you know, whether you like them or don't, what do they do with their position? They selfishly exploit it to get what they, what it, and hopefully what they want is, is our good. But, but you've never been, have you ever been to a convention or lo- watch a convention on TV, uh, whether it's uh, down in the States or in Canada? Who's the main event? It's the leader of the party. And everything's building and building and building and building until that, that final moment when, when, when all the, the confetti comes down and the balloons go up and, and, and the main event is the, the leader of the party. Throughout history, you, you never put at the, the center of the parade the private who was working in the foxhole. You put at the center of the parade either the president or the general that won the victory. This leader is significantly different. He did not think the fact he was God and is God, and continue to be God, the fact that he is glory uh, was of such a na- nature and such a magnitude that it fills the temple and fills the earth, it overwhelms anybody who sees what he sees. Has that made any sense? <laughs> Despite that, he says, I'm not going to hang on to this. I'm not going to selfishly exploit this. This is going on in the mind of God, the mind of Christ. Verse 7, I want you to notice how Jesus empties himself. Now, these these couple words have caused all kinds of issues in the church over the last couple hundred years. Up until then, it caused no issues. But I think uh, there's been a lot of it talk about what happens, what this word means is that, that Jesus, when he became a man, he stopped in some way be, being God. So he, he hung up his garments of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, or maybe he hung up his garments of his all-knowingness, or he, he hung up some type of garment and he, and he gave that up so that he could become a man. But the text doesn't say that. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself How? By taking the form of a servant. It's not like he stopped being God. He just simply put on the clothes of not simply a human, but a servant, a slave. That's really what that word is. The NIV, actually, he became nothing. Not that he ceased to exist, but that he became a nobody. The whole story of the Christmas story where he's born and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. We have this like this kind of nostalgic picture of it, but he's wrapped in 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 cloth, strips of cloth, and then then he's laid in a feed trough. 
He's a nobody. This is the God whose glory fills the temple. And he willingly empties himself. How does he empty himself? By putting on the garments of a slave. That's crazy. Colossians this week in our, in our small group, we were starting a series on Colossians, and, and so we read through Colossians. And then we just talked about it. Next week, we're going to, this coming week, we're going to start digging into it a little bit. But Colossians 1, verse 17. This is talking about Christ. Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I don't really understand that, but that's what the scriptures say, that he holds all things together. So if my understanding of Philippians chapter 2 is right, when this child is wrapped in, in swaddling cloths and laid in a feed trough, that's Jesus fully human, fully the least among the least, and yet at the same time he's still holding all things together. I, I don't, my, my brain can't wrap my head around that. But that's the beauty of Scripture. The God of the Bible is not a God created in our image. It's a God that's so other than us, we can't completely grasp him. And that's part of the wonder of Christmas. Who is he? Now, there's one more. There's one more thing I want you to notice in this, that's going on in the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And that's this thing called the cross. A lot of our, a lot of our hymns. What do we do? We we love to sing about God's creative power, right? We love to sing about God's resurrection power. We love to talk about the great works that God has done in the past and what God is. Even even when we have our conversations, we love to say, "This is what God has done. This is amazing." But but this hymn. This hymn is actually taking our, our, our chin and lifting our eyes up to the cross. Because if we really want to undergrasp the significance of what's going on in the mind of Christ, we've got to see and understand the cross. Now here we've got a cross, and this one's kind of rugged, but they're, they're, our crosses are kind of nostalgic, aren't they? We hang them around our necks. We use often they're gold or silver. Um, we, we put them up on our buildings, and... They're, they're, they're ornaments of beauty. But the cross in the first century was nothing beautiful. The electric chair in our day and age is, is, is actually merciful compared to the cross. The hangings of the Old West is incredibly merciful compared to the cross. The Roman cross was, was a, a symbol of incredible shame and incredible pain. First, they would beat you. So your back was open. And, and you were already weakened by loss of blood and, and, and an incredible amount of pain. 
And then you would carry your, your, your cross beam to wherever they were going to p- put you to death. And that whole process was meant to shame you and ridicule you. And then, and then they would literally either tie or nail your, your, your hands and your feet to the, to, to, to the wooden cross. But the point of that, they, they would actually give you a little platform to put your feet upon. And the point of that was so that you would die a slow, harsh death. And, and as you were on, hanging on that cross in the open Mideastern sunshine, you would, you would have to push yourself up on that cross all the while your open back would rub up against that rough old tree. The pain, that all by itself would be something, but, your, but, but the pain in, your, in, in the the nails that are holding your weight would be just like excruciating, but you had to pull yourself up if you were going to get a breath. And once you got that breath, then you would have to collapse because the pain was so intense. And then you would have to pull yourself back up so you could take a breath. But it caused every ounce of pain. And then you'd pull and you'd crash back down. And the pain... The pain was intense, and the people would gather around and ridicule you and mock you. And, and the whole point was to shame you, and so you would die in shame. It's probably one of the, the worst forms of death that is known to humanity. And who was on that cross? The glory of the Lord. That's who's on that cross. Look at verse 8. But he em- verse 7, but he emptied himself, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient, he submitted to his Father. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This hymn not only wants us to gaze upon the glory of God and the glory of Christ, but he wants us to gaze on the, on the Christ who willingly took on human form, who took on the, the, the garments of a servant, but it wants us to gaze on the cross. That's this Jesus. He hung upon the cross. And the Apostle Paul says, let each of you Look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. This is our mind, or ought to be our mind, as Christians. Setting aside... Our positions, setting aside who we think we might be, and putting others ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I mean, if, if we do that in the biggest way we possibly think we could, that would be nothing compared to what Christ has done. Have this mind among yourselves 
I think Euodia and Syntyche, as they're ticked off with each other about whatever, <laughs> and if they pause long enough to consider what Paul says in these verses, I think they would have went like, no, you go first. <laughs> no, let, let's go your way. Let's do it your way. Let's, let, let's, let's put each other first. The implications of this, I think, are astounding. Now, why did Jesus do this? He didn't. He did, Jesus did not just simply come a man simply because he wanted to go to the cross and, and, and be this incredible example. Uh, he is an incredible example, but in Matthew, let me close with this. In Matthew chapter 20 and in verse 28, We read, so let's back it up. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If this was the mind that was in you, how would life at work look different for you? If this is the mind that's in you, how, how, how would your, your relationships with your family, your friends, your roommates, how would that look different? If this same mind that we see in Christ is evident in you, how would your relationships in the context of the church look different? Like, this is challenging. God becomes a man. Let this mind be in you. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Um, I marvel at what you've done. I, I, can't, I can't imagine that when Isaiah saw you, he couldn't. He was so wowed, but all he really saw was the hem of your garment filling a temple. And he was just overwhelmed and saw himself as undone. When you, when you manifested yourself simply by a cloud and a bright light and you filled the temple, Lord, the priests couldn't do their job. And yet, Lord, there's something going on on the cross that is astoundingly beautiful. That you simply didn't just become a man, not just a babe, but you, Lord, you came and you gave your life on a cross for me, for us. This Christmas, God, may we marvel at your gift of grace. May we marvel at the wonder of you becoming a man. And Lord, would, you, would it challenge us to look different in all of our relationships? Not so quick to have to be right, 
I'm so quick to have to be first. But may we be quicker at putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves. I love you, Jesus. But the truth is, the scriptures make it so clear. You love me and us first and best. <laughs> and may we marvel at that for the rest of the days of our life. In your name we pray.